This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. David Pluff, the architect of President Obama's election wins in 2008 and 2012, is my guest today. He's just published two books. One is called A Citizen's Guide to Beating Donald Trump, and the other is a kind of similar book, but for a younger audience, called Ripples of Hope, Your Guide to Electing a New President. You know, so much has happened, and it happens so quickly these days, that I need to let everyone know that we're speaking in the late afternoon on Sunday, March 8th, 2020. The electoral and political landscape is changing rapidly. Um, So I should probably also say that it's 6.15 Eastern Daylight Time, because who knows what might happen in an hour or two. What a week we've had, David. Yeah, well, obviously, most importantly, the coronavirus, but uh, Super Tuesday and, uh, you know, Donald Trump uh, really being faced with his first serious crisis and mishandling that as sadly we could have predicted. So, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, 48 hours from now, the world could look very different and probably will. Most, most definitely it will. Give us a little sense as to why you wrote these two books now. Well, I started, I really got the idea to begin working on these after the 2018 elections. I was so inspired by all the activism that created such remarkable um, night for Democrats mostly. And I was so inspired by all the young women in particular who were winning house races. But I kept getting, you know, that was a good election, but I kept hearing from people. What are we going to do to beat Trump? What can I do? I want to do more. So I thought, well, as someone who's managed a presidential race, there's lots of people I think who could write a really good guide for all the things you can do. But I wanted to put in the context of I've run these things and your individual effort is more important to me as a manager than some of the stuff we see on TV. And then I've got, you know, 11 and 15 year old kids. And I really anytime a child is passionate about something, uh, to me, there's nothing more powerful than that. And they, they may not have a vote, but they have a voice. And so, you know, the way I thought about it is, let's say you've got, uh, you know, a couple of kids at home, teenagers, their parents are at the dinner table saying, I can't believe Trump said this. We really got to get him out. I want the kids to say, well, what are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? <laughs> and and that's that's the message for adults, too, which is, and it's a tough message, which is this is on all of you. Um, you know, there is no magic uh you know, Calvary that's going to emerge here. And it's clear we don't have the next coming of John F. Kennedy as a nominee. So uh, we're going to have to work really hard. So as we sit here, we have two nominees on the Democratic side. Um, and similar to 2016, they're, they're both distinguished by their different political views. What is your sense of um, the ability that the party has to come together better than we did in 2016. You know, it's if you look statistically, um, you know, the vast majority of the people that participate in the Democratic Party, um, uh, those that were with Bernie supported Hillary. But I think there's no question that it was hard to bring that together. Maybe people voted for Hillary, but they didn't volunteer. 
Um, and I think the body language wasn't great. Bernie did what he had to do. Um, he and Biden get along really well. So if Biden wins this, uh, and given that Trump is looming, I think Bernie will put everything he has into this. But part one, I, I talk about this in the book. If you're a local uh, precinct volunteer who supported Joe Biden or one of the other candidates who dropped out, and you know the six or seven most active people who supported Bernie Sanders in your community, invite them over. Like we got to reach out and we got to listen to them and understand what they're upset about, what their ideas are. Pretty clear that you know the Sanders campaign knows how to reach out to young people, even though they're not getting huge turnout, they're getting a lot of support. So we need all that, um, and so it's going to take work. But whatever Barack Obama does, and Michelle Obama, and Hillary Clinton, and, and Joe Biden, and Bernie Sanders, and Kamala Harris, and everybody. Um, that's half of it, but the other half is how do we? And I'm a little worried now. Twitter's not real life, but you know things are getting pretty nasty on that platform in the last 48 hours. We're talking Sunday, uh, and that's not helpful, I don't think. Um, you know, so so this, so I don't think if we sit here the morning of November 4th, and Donald Trump has won re-election, as horrifying as that thought is. I don't think it'll be we didn't unify after the primary is the number one reason. But if you don't have that solid foundation, it makes everything else harder. So the thing, one of the things that you talk about so strongly in the book is what individuals can do. And so one of the things I guess you're advocating is that as individuals, we ought to be able to really reach out to those people within the party who we differ with yes. and find out how we can bring everyone together. Right. You know, I obviously spend time in the book talking about some of the campaign activities that I think folks are more familiar with, phone calling and canvassing. And actually, I try to put those in perspective, which they're going to be frustrating. You're not going to reach many people, but just be okay with that because you got to look at your individual effort in the aggregate. But things like that, bringing the Bernie people over and saying, we need you to be part of this. Um, you know, uh, creating your own content to share on social media. I think a lot of us wait to see what comes down on high. And, you know, one of my favorite examples is if you've got a neighbor who voted for Trump last time was voting Democrat, you know, ask them if they you can record 15 seconds with them on your phone about why they did it and post it. Well, that's a great idea. Or if you're a 19 year old, uh, maybe who was supported Bernie said, you know what? It took me a while, but I just know all that matters to me is climate. Biden will get back in the Paris Climate Accords. I'm not sure what else he'll do, but he'll do that. Like that's the other message of the book is the people that decide this election are never going to put a bumper sticker for a candidate on their car. They're cynical, they're conflicted. And I think sometimes as Democrats, we want to convince them of everything. You need to become a lifelong activist. And yes, our nominee is going to be on Mount Rushmore. And I think we all have to be like, okay, that a vote that someone casts holding their nose is the same as somebody casting it with right. a t-shirt on. <laughs> and, and this time we do have a commonality. Those of us who might not, who don't want to vote for uh, the, the current president, and that is that there's a moral imperative that we share in some ways, which is making for very interesting and strange bedfellows as well. Yes. You know, if you just look at Sunday morning, Sunday morning uh, talk shows and what's going on, you know, all the never Trumpers and all of that. And in some ways, I wonder, I've been thinking about this, and I wonder how you feel about this. You know, the meme was always, or the, the conventional wisdom was that Bernie was the guy able to to, to bring out more voters. But what we saw last Tuesday was that it was really Biden who brought out more voters. He brought out more of the suburban voters and that sort of thing. And I'm wondering if that's because he was bringing out people who were Republicans who had changed and switched over the suburban right. women who are now Democrats. So the Democratic Party itself has changed to some extent. Well, 
you know, maximizing that drift in suburban areas to the Democratic Party, it's almost becoming a, a base part of our political coalition now. Right. And they came out for Biden in big numbers. Of course, what's crazy is I think 72 hours before that, uh, probably some were Biden, some were Amy. So were and everybody but, was writing his but, obituary. Right. But that energy is great to see because we need that. We saw important it was in 18. The African-American turnout's been pretty high. I was in North Carolina just yesterday on, on a Saturday and uh, at, at, uh, at a book event and, and a woman there asked, you know, got up and said, folks need to understand this is existential to us, okay? right. to our community. And so they're coming out because they're worried about Trump. Uh, young turnout isn't what you'd like to see. And so we, I will say this. So Bernie Sanders is a super strong candidate with the young and he's not getting the turnout. Uh, it's hard to do. So to me, of all the things that worry me, it's that as I look at November. But we saw very strong youth turnout in 2018, really historic off-year turnout. And Barack Obama in both of his elections got very strong turnout. So we have three relatively recent examples, so we know it can be done. But if we underperform there, it obviously makes everything harder. What what percentage is considered a good youth turnout about? Well, you know, of eligible voters, I think you'd like to be north of 60 if you can in a presidential year. Um, and, uh, you know, in what... what it always surprises people um, and, and in some of the after analysis after 12. So, you know, we won a tough reelection against Mitt Romney, won Florida narrowly, as you guys remember. Um, and in most battleground states, we had a higher percentage turnout amongst young people than we did in 08. And so think about that. 08 was like hope and change. Now we had the recession, but still mm -hmm. 12 was like a gritty. Now, in a way, Romney seems so much of the past, women's health care. And but that was we I think we did a good job as a campaign. But that was young people on their own just decided we are not moving backwards. So um, to me, that is the thing that we're going to have to watch really, really carefully. Um, and ultimately, the people who are going to decide whether we have a good young turnout or not are actually not people who are ever going to vote in a Democratic primary. They're just people who, you know, that's your opportunity in the general election. We they're going to wait. And then right. Just or they're just like, I wouldn't, they never vote in a primary, right. but they right. may vote in the main event. Right. And And how does that how does that play out um, in the down ballot races dealing with the House and the Senate? I mean, one of the you know one of the one of the dreams is to be able to get the Senate as well. So, how would some of this dynamic play out that way? Well, first of all, this is um, this is super tactical. Uh, but one of the things we got to make sure happens is if somebody does come out to vote, in this case, let's say it's Biden against Trump and they vote for Biden, we want them to vote all the way down the ticket. We have a lot of people who bail after the presidential vote. You got to hold them on. But we are at a time in our party where our ability to win, it wasn't too long ago we had two senators in Arkansas and South Dakota and North Dakota. Even, even in, in 10 years Idaho. Ago. Okay. Remember? So those days are over for a while. Right. Which means. Uh, our ceiling for Senate races is pretty low, and we got to take advantage of every single one. So where I was yesterday, North Carolina must win. Obviously, Colorado. Maine against Collins must win. Colorado and Arizona. Those are the four. Now, we may have a chance in Iowa, but we have to win those four. Like We have no Senate races to lose here, and that's why we need a nominee who does well enough uh, to allow those types of candidates to win. Right. Yeah, no, that's... Um that's, that, that's exactly right on, I think. So you were telling me earlier that what you really got excited about was writing this book for younger people as well. Tell me why that's the case. Well, I, I, uh, I obviously got excited about the adult version too. But young, first of all, I have kids of that age. 
Second of all, it's interesting. Um, for me anyway, I was only worried about what they thought. Like, I, I, I don't know, sometimes when, when I was writing, I, this is only my second adult book, but you know, you're like, is that going to make sense? And, and what are the cynics going to say? And with kids, it was just easy to kind of let it rip. And I just felt good about it. You know, it was really, because um, uh, some of it is educational. I try and explain about what a presidential campaign, but also how they can get involved. And it just inspires me. Um, you know, one of the things that gives me hope on the dark days are the people organizing, you know, the kids uh, from Parkland and, and Greta on the climate and folks who've been organizing for the minimum wage who are young, like they're the hope. And, uh, you know, I think that I, I also was so motivated to write it because if Trump gets eight years, we may not survive as a planet or a country. But, you know, you've got this whole cohort then until they'll know that's and and the modeling of that from a behavior standpoint is terrible. So I just really enjoyed it. I, I it was um, not that I the, the adult book was not a, I wasn't writing tight at all. I enjoyed that, too. Um, but this one was just so loose. And, you know, because you're writing for kids, right, who right. are not cynical, right. uh, who 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 will say, well, you know, I like three things. I didn't like two things. They're just going to like absorb it and hopefully do some things with it. But I'm excited about it. Well, and I think it's an amazing teaching tool if yeah. people use it that way. And I would say the, the adult the adult book that you wrote as well, it it was riveting for me. I mean, you, you know, I told you earlier that it gave me a little PTSD, you know, going <laughs> Sorry through it, yeah. but, uh, but it, it, you, it was a wake up call. It's a gigantic wake up call. And, um, so, you know, it was, I was a little nervous a few weeks ago, but how do you think we're doing now? Well, I would, and I, I mentioned this in the book, uh, I would still rather be us than Trump despite all his advantages. Um, and obviously, his approval rating's not great, but he's got other advantages that I get go. Uh, I mean, like the Russians. <laughs> well, yeah, he's got the Russians, and he's got actually, unlike last time, he's got a really good campaign. He's obsessed right. with winning. He'll overperform in battleground states. I mean, it's almost certainly we're going to win the popular vote again, but that doesn't matter, you know. Um, but there are more than enough Americans in the battleground states, particularly if we do some smart registration, to beat them. And so the whole point of the book is the execution has to happen and we can't assume the execution will happen because our candidate's awesome in debates or gives a great interview or puts out a great ad. It's on us because it literally is a person or two at a time. So here, let me give you an example. So let's talk about Wisconsin just because it's a smaller, but you know, Hillary only lost by 23,000 votes. So let's say you go down on a Saturday, the first September in, in, um, uh, first Saturday in, in September of 2020 later this year. And you go door knocking with a list the campaign gave you to try and um, convince people who are registered, but the campaign thinks might turn out. And you out there, you're sweating because it's still kind of hot and a lot of people aren't home. Uh, at the end of the day, you said, I think maybe the two people I talked to now will think more uh, seriously about voting. One of them said they definitely would. One said they might. And you can say, what the hell does that mean? But if 5,000 other people are doing it that Saturday, that's 10,000 people. 10, and the next day, that's another 10,000. That's 20. Eight weekends, 160,000. So let's say 140 of those 160,000, which is a huge flake rate, don't follow through. It's still enough to win the state. And so Florida, as you know, the last three elections has been enormously close. So close. And so you think about, you know, in Florida, if you have 10 or 12,000 people out every weekend uh, and doing phones and doing social media, you know, uh, it, it does aggregate up. And listen, I write about this in the book. Um, Florida is the best example of the polling publicly in our polling in both Obama races uh, showed that we couldn't win Florida. 
But we said, if we register this many people and turn out this many people, and we knew we could because we had such passionate volunteers, we made the most important decision you make in a presidential campaign. What states do you target based on strength of volunteers in Florida? And um, that is the best example of what's possible if people get motivated. Because you can't get to a win number in some of these states, no matter how much money you have, no matter how strong your candidate is, if you don't have the requisite enthusiastic support on the ground. I think that's beautifully stated. And I think, you know, there, there are groups now who are uh, organizing in states like California, New York, that are clearly going to be Democratic states. And they're encouraging people to go do it, just what you're saying in neighboring states that might be a little bit up yeah. for grabs. Well, I think so, there's a group from California that went to Arizona. Oh, absolutely. To try to do something. I live in California now. I mean, I, I don't talk to a single person in the state um, without asking them when they're going to Arizona. So, uh, so, so you know, we're talking in Florida. I mean, so the message here is a little bit different. I was just in North Carolina. I'm going right. to Pennsylvania more. It's like you are a ground zero of the battle for our soul. Yeah, we need to get out. So, like, there's a burden there. But if you're not in a battleground state, you know, uh, social media and the Internet has no state lines. You can have an impact. But if you have the time and, and, and resources, um, if you're close to a battleground state, like if you live in New York, you can drive to Pennsylvania. But if you have the ability to use your miles or afford a plane ticket, go. go. Ha, you know, there's no excuse not to. Like this is a put up or shut up moment. Because I'm really curious because as a political junkie my whole life, I am very curious as to um, what road do you take? What road do you go down to become a political consultant? How did that happen in your life? Well, for me, you know, um, I was uh, at an age uh, pre-internet, okay, but uh, I followed uh, current events very carefully, newspaper, TV, um, was in college, wasn't part of the college Democrats. Where did you grow up? You grew up in? Uh, Delaware. And you went to University of Delaware. Right? Yeah. And so we used to have these things called newspapers, right? And <laughs> Uh, I think the summer before I had cleaned chimneys with my brother, he had a chimney cleaning service and there was an ad saying, um, you know, come work on a Senate campaign. And actually I thought, well, I probably, I was thinking I'd go to law school, but I'm like, that may have some more, uh, connection to what I may do after college than chimneys again. So I'm like, I'll go interview. It was to be a canvasser, join that U S Senate race. And I loved it. Uh, we lost, I, I talk about it, a, a narrow loss. And I learned a lot about that in terms of the power of the individual, but then went to Iowa. And, you know, for me, it was like, I just kept getting more responsibility. I managed my first congressional campaign at 24, first Senate race at 29. So you did this right out of, right out of college. Yeah. And, and so, uh, the beginning part of my career was, was in campaigns. Then for a while, David Axrod and I were partners and did consulting for people like Barack Obama and Deval Patrick. Where did you meet David Axrod? So David, uh, was the media consultant and strategist on a Senate race I ran in 1994. So was that we, for Harkin? Was that no, it was a guy named Charlie Oberly, attorney general who ran against Bill Roth of Roth IRA. Of fan. course. We lost because the 94s, well, your older listeners will remember it was a terrible year for Democrats and it was a big undertow. But David and I stayed, you know, close friends. And, and after the 2000 election, we hooked up and that, you know, 2002, right after the 02 elections is the first time I met Barack Obama, state senator. And I had breakfast with him. And the conversation literally was like, you have to stop driving yourself around because then you can't make phone calls and you got to stop dodging your fundraising calls and you know, it was like the most remedial conversation ever. And it's a great lesson. Like, uh, and I give David Axelrod most of the credit for this, but you know, it, it was a decision we had to make as a firm. It's like, he's not going to win and we're not going to make any money, but like, he's clearly just an awesome guy. So let's do it. 
And uh, it was like, it really was just like a labor of love. And uh, so that's, you know, for me, I love politics because it, I'm a super competitive person. So politics is great. You win or you lose. Right. I think that it matters. One thing I, I tell people, sometimes the connection is missed. Let's talk about Florida. So the 2000 election, obviously 538 votes. And when people talk about what that means in relation to the Iraq war and the hundreds of thousands of Iraqis dead and thousands of Americans and what it meant to our economy, at the root of that, that was not a foreign policy decision at its core. It was an electoral decision. Most definitely. Everything in this country that we do or don't do flows back to who we elect. And I think sometimes people forget that. It seems like a debate in Congress or in the UN or at a state legislature. It all flows from elections. And so for me, I've never forgotten that. Who wins these elections uh, matters more than basically anything in the world. You know, and that comes, and that's what I really respect about you, David. It comes through loud and clear in your book that what drives you and motivates you is not what might drive and motivate just any political consultant. It's not just the winning and losing but you want to do something that matters. It's clear that you want to make sure that what you do makes a difference in the world, I think. Well, for people who, you know, won't ever be, um, you know, necessarily at a fundraiser or, you know, working on a campaign, we're fighting for people right. who um, need to be fought for. Uh, and, and that to me has always motivated me. Um, and that's what scares me about this election. I mean, Trump, um, having worked in the White House, and we're beginning to see what, the way he's handling the coronavirus. His policies are terrible. He's a terrible human being. But so much of being president is stuff you weren't planning for. And it you just went through drops that. in your lap. You went through right. that when you were the advisor to yeah, the president. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. And you need someone who's stable and who's selfless uh, and who's willing to do things even if the politics are bad. And Trump is none of those things. So that's what scares me. And the power of that office has grown over time. It's the most powerful office right now the history of the world's ever known. Mm -hmm. And we have one of our worst, less, least talented people in it. It's super scary. But any election matters, you know, uh, because what flows from that is decisions that affect people's lives for good or for bad. And the thing that, one of the things that makes me really excited, you're starting to see more people decide to run for office uh, not because they see it as a career. I think for a long time, people thought I'm either going to have to make this a career or not. It's like, I will go be a reform district attorney for four years. I will go be a city manager. Mm -hmm. I will be a state senator for four years. It's too many of our best people were not choosing that route, and they still don't. Mm -hmm. But I'm so excited to see just like normal people deciding to get office. in the arena. Absolutely. and And they don't see it as a career. They're just going to do it for a period of time, take their swings at the plate, and move on. And God knows we need that. Yeah. And they're winning. The and they're winning. Them. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. My last question yeah. for you is just one that, you know, maybe I just want sort of to get an idea, you know, inside your own mind. Where do you get your own information from? What is your day like? It's a great question. So for me, um, okay, I, I, you know, I, I listen to the daily sometimes. I, I listen to sports podcasts. I read the New York Times. I read the Wall Street Journal. I, I follow a lot of conservatives on Twitter to say what they're saying. I think that's super important, both to know what the opposition's saying. But sometimes you'll see something that you agree with. Um, I um, watch a lot of documentaries. Um, I think I found myself, because we're in election seasons now and primaries, spending more time on Twitter than I'd like. So my resolution to you on a Sunday night is this week I will spend less time on it because I think it, it fries your brain. 
Um, and I've been spending a lot of time reviewing election statistics. Uh, you know, I did before I wrote this book and I have them on my head at all times, but I'm spending a lot of time playing with scenarios for what we have to do to win. Um, and, uh, you know, reading a lot. So, you know, I just started Eric Larson's new book about Churchill um, and uh, finished Phil Rucker's book, Very Stable Genius, that he wrote with Ashley Parker. I've always been a pretty healthy reader, but I, I'm trying to read a book a week this year, and it's really made my life healthier. And you're in a city, you live in San Francisco, so... Independent bookstores everywhere. everywhere. It's the best. What are some of the ones you go to there? We live yeah. within walking distance of Books, Inc. Oh, you do? So, um, you know, they've got several chapters, but that's yeah. great. Um, city Lights, obviously, when you're downtown. Cool. David, I was really impressed with... Um with one particular passage that you highlight actually on the dust jacket of the book. I wonder if you could read that for me. Of course. Donald Trump could very well win re-election, and he almost certainly will, if all of us opposed to that result don't do everything we can do, and more than we have ever done before in 2020. Talking about you, there was only you. It's a scary thought, I know. How can one average citizen win against Trump, Javanka, Fox News, Breitbart, those Russians, and billions of dollars in lies and distortions. One person can't. But when you become we, and we becomes us, millions and millions of us, then we have a grassroots force too powerful be to be denied. And there's not an hour to waste. David Pluff, I just want to say thank you so very much for well, being thank here. Thank you for what you do. Uh, oh, this thanks. remarkable store here in the community you've built and uh, having me here. Uh, real pleasure. Well, all that noise you hear <laughs> are, is your audience gathering. <laughs> so we better, uh, we better end this. And again, I want to thank you very, very much. Of course. Thank you.